You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 110, The Battle of Valcour Island. Most of the summer of 1776 focused on New York City. That was where Britain sent the bulk of its troops and where most of the fighting took place. As I discussed a few episodes back, Britain also sent a large contingent to Canada to secure that area. When General Johnny Burgoyne arrived with 8,000 regulars in the spring of 76, General Guy Carleton did not even wait for the entire force to arrive before he brought his forces out of Quebec and chased the Americans out of Canada entirely. But at the Quebec border, the offensive came to a halt. The British could not easily transport their navy from the St. Lawrence River onto Lake Champlain. General Benedict Arnold had built up a fleet of Continental ships on the lake, and Carleton did not want to challenge Arnold's fleet until he could do so with an overwhelming force. As I discussed back in episode 106, Burgoyne, who had led the reinforcements from Britain to Canada, did not share Carleton's reluctance to attack. Burgoyne grew frustrated, sitting around all summer, waiting for something to happen. He spent most of the summer badmouthing his superior to pretty much everyone he knew back in London. But if the two top British generals in Canada did not get along, that was nothing compared to the infighting on the American side. General Philip Schuyler still commanded the Northern Army in New York, but Congress had sent General Horatio Gates to command the Army in Canada. Now that the American Army in Canada had retreated back into New York, both generals spent most of the summer fighting over who was really in charge. Schuyler was the senior officer, but Gates had received an independent command. The junior officers also continued their own infighting. General Arnold had spent most of the war making enemies with just about all the other officers he met. Over the summer, he had gotten into a tussle over the court-martial of Moses Hazen, which resulted in the court seeking permission to arrest Arnold for his expression of contempt for the court. Gates had refused to allow any such arrest because, hey, the British were going to attack any day, and Arnold was their best battlefield commander. So he put Arnold back in charge, but then Arnold had to fight his way back into command of the fleet after Schuyler had given the command to Colonel Jacobus Wincoop. That fight gave Gates an opportunity to get into a pissing match with Schuyler by backing Arnold and arresting Wincoop. Schuyler backed down so that by the end of the summer of 1776, Arnold was once again in command of the fleet on Lake Champlain and ready to face the enemy. Of course, that's just a quick summary of what I went over in more detail in episode 106 if you need more information. British General Guy Carleton 
came from the same school of leadership as General Howe down in New York City. Take your time. Don't do anything risky. Wait until you are in a position to overwhelm the enemy so that there can be only one outcome. While Howe used the late summer and fall of 1776 to nudge Washington's army slowly out of New York, Carleton got an even later start. His fleet did not leave St. John until October 4th. But when it did, Carleton was well prepared to defeat any continental resistance on the lake. Carleton's delay was the result of assembling a fleet of about 25 warships, either built at St. John or broken into pieces at Three Rivers, and then hand-carried and reassembled at St. John. The largest of these ships was the Thunderer. It was really more of a floating battery, about 500 feet long. Its six 12-pounder cannons alone made her the equal of any American ship on the lake, but the Thunderer also had six 24-pounders, as well as howitzers, meaning no other ship came close to her firepower. Because the ship was so large and unwieldy, the presumed purpose was to float it down the lake to Forts Crown Point and Ticonderoga to use as part of a siege. Carleton had other ships ready for a full-scale naval battle on Lake Champlain. The Inflexible had 16 12-pounders and two 9-pounders. The Carleton had 12 6-pounders, and the Maria, named after Carleton's wife, had 14 6-pounders. They had also built a gondola called the Loyal Convert with six 9-pounders and a single 24-pounder. In addition, the fleet included several smaller row ships with a single cannon mounted on the bow. At least 10 of these smaller ships had been built in Britain and sent across the Atlantic as kits to be reassembled on the lake. In addition to the 25 warships armed with cannon, the fleet included troop transports as well as several hundred Indian canoes. Most of the regulars remained behind, waiting until the fleet cleared the lake. But the fleet did take with it about a thousand regulars, as well as hundreds of Canadian militia and Indians prepared to do battle with any land forces they met along the shores. To counter the British fleet, the Continentals had assembled and built a fleet of their own. The largest ships were the Royal Savage and the Enterprise, which Arnold had captured on the lake a year earlier. They also built the Revenge, the Liberty, and the Lee. Most of these were armed with six- or four-pounder cannon, although the Lee had one 12-pounder. Now, size really matters with these cannons, since the goal is to rip large holes in the enemy ships to sink them. When I say a six-pounder, I'm referring to the size of the ball, of course, not the cannon itself. Larger cannon made bigger holes in boats, and they could usually be fired from a greater distance, giving the ship an advantage of range. The Americans put most of their heaviest guns on four large row galleys, the Trumbull, the Washington, the Congress, and the Gates, all of which had one or two 18-pounders, as well as a few 12-pounders and some smaller cannon. In battle, these ships could be rowed into position, easier than a sailing vessel, hopefully getting in some successful shots before the enemy could get into position to return fire. The disadvantage of these galleys is that they required a lot of men to row them 
and were much slower in open water, meaning the enemy would have an easier time overtaking them. The Continental Navy rounded out its fleet with eight smaller gunboats, the Philadelphia, the New York, the New Jersey, the Connecticut, the Providence, the New Haven, the Spitfire, and the Boston. Like the galleys, each of these had to be rowed. Each had at least one 9- or 12-pounder, as well as a few smaller cannon. With the superior force, better trained crews, and far more resources, General Carleton felt confident he could move down Lake Champlain and counter the American fleet at any point of their choosing, defeat them, and continue on down to Fort Ticonderoga at the southern tip of the lake. He expected Arnold to confront his fleet at Cumberland Point, one of the narrowest places on the lake where the smaller Continental Fleet would be at less of a disadvantage. General Gates had ordered Arnold to keep his fleet between Fort Ticonderoga and Carleton's fleet and do his best to put up a defense. The expected outcome to be eventually falling back to Fort Ticonderoga and there, backed by the fort's guns, they would put up a final defense against the British fleet. Arnold thought those were stupid orders, but he did not bother to fight about it. Instead, he just ignored orders and implemented his own plan. He knew that Carleton was too cautious to move until the winds were in his favor, and that Carleton would not leave an enemy fleet in his rear while proceeding down to Fort Ticonderoga. Arnold wanted to lure Carleton into a fight at a point where the Americans would have the greatest advantage. Valcour Island was a small island just off the west coast of Lake Champlain, just below Cumberland Point. The point of entry from the northern part of the island into the narrow water between the island and the western shore was too full of rocks and debris for most large ships to be able to enter. Therefore, they would need to sail around the east to the southern part of the island and then tack north into Valcour Bay. Since Carleton would have waited to set sail until he had a steady northerly wind to carry him down the lake, the wind would be against him as he sailed back up into Valcour Bay to meet Arnold's fleet. Arnold chained his ships together in an arc inside the bay. That way, all of his ships could concentrate fire on the British ships entering the bay, which they would have to do one or two at a time and against the wind. That would give Arnold's fleet time to demolish each ship as it entered without having to face the entire British fleet at once. The plan actually seemed to work reasonably well. As expected, Carleton waited for good weather and a favorable northerly wind before proceeding south on October 10th. That night, the British fleet lay anchor just a few miles north of Valcour Island. There's some dispute as to what actually happened. Carleton, of course, issued a formal report after the battle, but about a year later, several subordinate officers wrote an open letter to Captain Pringle, which was published in London, and which greatly contradicted many of the facts as Carleton had presented them. They also accused Carleton of cowardice. The three officers who filed this report were upset that Carleton had assumed command of the fleet rather than allowing General Burgoyne that honor. They were also upset that Carleton had appointed Captain Thomas Pringle as fleet commander over the three of them who had seniority. 
Therefore, their anti-Carlton bias might have been as strong as Carlton's bias to paint a picture that put himself in the best possible light. That said, it's nice to have the two sources of differing perspective to explain what was happening on the British side during the battle. So, Carlton said he had no idea that the American fleet was in Valcour Bay. He fully expected to find them at Cumberland Point. When he did not, he continued to sail south, taking advantage of a strong northerly wind that morning, sailing right past Valcour Island and down the lake. The report by the dissenting officers said that he did know about the American fleet. While Carlton had sidelined Burgoyne on Lake Champlain, Burgoyne had sent light infantry down the coast of the lake looking for the enemy. They reported back that they spotted the fleet near Valcour Island on October 9th. The open letter said that Carlton knew about this and just refused to act on the intelligence. Now, the truth is likely that there was some report of the enemy in the area two days earlier, but Carlton, after not finding the enemy where he expected, simply assumed they were in full retreat down the lake as fast as they could go. There's no specific evidence that Carlton received intelligence showing the enemy's exact position behind Valcour Island. So Carlton let every ship sail at full speed down the lake. The Inflexible and the Thunderer were far down the lake, well past the island, when Arnold began to fear that the British might just sail past them entirely. This might have been a good thing, since then Arnold could have come down on the British fleet from the rear, taking out the troop transports before the warships could turn around and defend them. But Arnold wanted the fleet to attack him in Valcour Bay. By late morning, as the fleet was moving south, Arnold ordered the Royal Savage and three of the row galleys to move south toward an intercept with the British fleet. As soon as the British spotted his ships, Arnold ordered them to turn around and return to the line. He had gotten the attention of the British fleet and knew they would sail into his defensive lines now. But while the row galleys could return to the American lines, the Royal Savage had trouble tacking against the wind. The inexperienced crew was unable to get back to the lines as British gunboats surrounded and bombarded her, taking out most of her sails. The British Inflexible soon came within range and used its heavy artillery to destroy the hull and rigging even further. Soon, the Royal Savage crashed into the coast of Valcour Island, where the surviving crew abandoned ship, escaping into the island. Some made their way back to the American fleet. Others would be captured by Indians, who deployed on the island later that day. A British boarding party was able to capture the Royal Savage and began using the cannon on the stranded ship to fire on the American fleet. But the Americans soon focused their fire and forced the British to abandon the sinking ship. Instead, they burned it down to its waterline later that evening. Although Arnold had not been aboard the ship that day, he did have personal property and papers aboard ship, the loss of which would come to haunt him later. The Royal Savage went down quickly in early fighting, giving hope to the British that this would be an easy fight. The first British gunboats sailed into Valcour Bay along with the Carlton, and that's the ship Carlton, not to be confused with the ship Maria, where General Carlton was aboard. As the ship Carlton entered Arnold's trap, 
all the American ships concentrated their fire. The Carleton's commander, a young lieutenant named James Dakers, took a hit in the head and was knocked unconscious. At first the crew thought he had been killed and were about to throw his body overboard, as was customary at the time. Fortunately for Dakers, an alert midshipman named Edward Pellew realized Dakers was still alive and prevented him from being thrown overboard. Years later, both Dakers and Pellew would become British admirals, fighting in the Napoleonic Wars. Pellew is better known by his later title, Admiral Lord Exmouth. The Carleton was in danger of sinking or being captured. With its rigging shot away, it could not even sail away from battle. Midshipman Pellew had to climb into the rigging and, while under fire, kick at a sail to get it to unfurl properly. With the assistance of British gunboats, the Carleton eventually retreated from the line of fire and escaped with heavy damage. So, overall, Arnold's plan was working well. The British fleet could not attack him en masse. His American gunners, despite little experience, effectively hit the few ships that made it into the bay. The largest British ships, the Thunderer and the Loyal Convert, were too far downwind to make it back in time for the battle at all that day. The large square-rigged Inflexible was not able to get into the bay where it could effectively fire on the Americans. With the Carleton out of commission, that only left the Maria and the smaller British gunships. The Maria was not the largest ship in the fleet, but it was probably the fastest, and it had the fleet commander, Captain Pringle, and General Carleton aboard. As the Maria approached the bay, an American cannonball passed over the deck, nearly taking off Carleton's head. Reportedly, Carleton simply turned to a colleague, Dr. Knox, who was standing next to him at the time and almost killed by the same ball, and asked him, Well, Doctor, how do you like a sea battle? But that shot was enough for Captain Pringle to order the ship to pull back and drop anchor, where the commanders could observe the fight from a safe distance. This later resulted in charges of cowardice against Pringle. Carleton ordered his Indians to land on Valcor Island and along the New York coast as well. From there, the Indians fired on the American ships with muskets. The fire was mostly distracting for the few ships closest to shore. Arnold had prepared for such an eventuality by building wooden breastworks on the ships to shield the men from musket fire. A few Indians attempted to row out to the ships and board them but the effective use of American swivel guns quickly dissuaded them from such attempts. Mostly, the Indians on shore prevented the Americans from any attempts to abandon ship and make their way back overland to Fort Ticonderoga. Throughout the day, both the enemy and his own men observed General Arnold in the thick of the fighting, moving from cannon to cannon to direct fire. By late in the day, the Inflexible finally got itself within range of the American ships. With its superior firepower, it did some damage, but also took considerable fire from the Americans. Before long, dusk ended the fighting, after about seven hours of battle. Many of the American ships were running out of ammunition, as were many of the smaller British gunships. Overall, Arnold's plan worked well. He had forced the British to attack him with only a few ships at a time and against the wind. 
But Carleton's advantage in numbers of ships, men, guns, and ammunition made it virtually impossible that the Americans would destroy or capture the fleet entirely. When the second day began, Arnold would no longer have the element of surprise. He remained trapped in Valcour Bay. Escape to the north was impossible given the rocks and impediments, and even if the American fleet could get through to the north, it would still be trapped between the British fleet and the British rear where 7,000 British regulars were there to meet them. Carleton's fleet blocked a southern escape. Hundreds of Indians patrolled the forests on both Falker Island and the mainland, preventing Arnold from simply scuttling his ships and attempting an escape overland. To the British, and probably to most American officers, it looked like Arnold's choices the following morning were surrender, burn the ships and surrender, or fight it out as the British fleet crushed the Americans. Any of these results would be reasonable. Arnold's fleet had already served its purpose. It had delayed the British attack on Fort Ticonderoga for nearly the entire 1776 fighting season. If the British captured the fleet, it would mean a few hundred prisoners, about the same as when the British captured Montgomery and Arnold's attack force at Quebec nine months earlier. It was an acceptable sacrifice for keeping 12,000 British and Allies from taking the Hudson Valley and linking up with British forces in New York City that year. Despite his position, though, Arnold was not quite ready to surrender. That night, at a council of war, he revealed his plan to escape from the British fleet. Next week, Arnold attempts to escape from the British fleet. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Today I want to thank our Robert Moros Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg, who runs Colonial Theater on the Air. His site is colonialradio.com. In an earlier episode, I called what he does audiobooks. While some of them are adapted from books, they really are not just someone reading from a book. These are full audio productions that use professional voice actors 
and use sound effects to help make the story come to life. It's most similar to an old-time radio story that you could enjoy before the age of TV. Colonial theater produces a wide variety of topics, uh, comedies, dramas, sci-fi. My favorites, of course, are the historical fiction. I've mentioned the Ticonderoga series, which is set in the French and Indian War, and follows many of the same events that I covered in the first few episodes of this podcast, and which saw fighting in the same area that was part of today's episode. If you have an Audible account, or sign up for one, you can get the episodes from Audible. You can also download them from Apple Music, or buy the CDs on Amazon. If you want to check out the full library and download some free samples, go to their website at colonialradio.com. I've also added a link to my website, amrevpodcast.com. In today's episode, Benedict Arnold takes a break from fighting with all of his fellow officers to fight the British instead. Combat, of course, is really where Arnold is in his element. His leadership in combat is why everyone put up with him during all the other times. Arnold not only commanded the day as a fearless leader of men under fire, he had a carefully designed plan that made the best use of his smaller and less experienced fleet against the British. Today's book recommendation is one dedicated to that battle. It is called The Battle of Valcor Island, The Participants and Vessels of Benedict Arnold's 1776 Defense of Lake Champlain by Stephen Darley. Now, this is not a narrative, nor even a particularly detailed book about the events of the battle itself. Rather, this book focuses on the ships and crew that participated in the battle. It contains short biographies of the ship's captains and descriptions of the ships themselves. As such, it can be a little dry and fact-laden. If you're looking for an enjoyable narrative about the battle itself, this may not be the book for you. But if you're looking for detailed facts about the fleet, this book is extremely well-researched and provides details that most other books do not. I should mention that the book is not a lengthy academic work either. It went straight to paperback in 2013 and is less than 200 pages, if you don't count the extensive notes and index. The author, Stephen Darley, is an amateur historian who has written a few other books about the Revolution. He retired from his day job about a decade ago and has since devoted himself to his true passion, researching and writing about events in the Revolution. So if you want to read more about the men and ships involved in the Battle of Valcor Island, then Darley's book, The Battle of Valcor Island, is a great choice. My online recommendation this week is the University of Groningen Early American History Project, available at www.let.rug.nl. And of course, if you didn't get that link, there'll be a link on my website so you can get to it. This project began at this university in the Netherlands a quarter of a century ago, when the internet was still in its infancy. The school embarked on a project to document early American history, including a great deal about the American Revolution. It includes outlines, transcripts of original documents, biographical sketches, and essays about the era. 
In fact, my blog for this episode cites an essay on the site by Stephen Ray, which covers the Battle of Valcor Island. The site overall provides well-written, researched, and documented information about U.S. history and is blissfully ad-free. I find it very useful for summaries of events without the unreliability of something like Wikipedia. So, if you are interested in using this website as a source, uh, go to my website, amrevpodcast.com, and click on the link for my online recommendation of the week. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.